0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books Network. My name is Rin Vieth, and I'm a host on the Human Rights Channel. Today, we have Michaela Rabinowitz here to discuss her new book, Incarceration Without Conviction, Pre Trial Detention, and the Erosion of American Criminal Justice. Thank you for coming on the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure.
0: I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about who you are and what brought you to this really important project.
1: Sure. So I currently work as the director of data research and analytics for the San Francisco district attorney's office. Um, I've been in this role for about a year and a half, and I will, I do want to, um, Plug the fact that uh, DA Chase Boudin, one of his first acts in coming into office, was to prohibit all assistant district attorneys in this office from requesting cash bail as a condition of release for um, defendants being prosecuted by this office. Um, with that said, I'm I'm not here as a representative of the office, and the, the city and county of San Francisco do require me to say that I'm speaking here as an in- independent researcher and that I didn't do the work um, as a city employee. Um, So the book, Incarceration Without Conviction, um, came out of the dissertation research that I did while I was a graduate student in sociology at Northwestern um, in Chicago. And the book really stemmed out of a research job that I got while I was in graduate school working um, for the Office of National Drug Control Policy and they were trying to understand drug networks in um, 10 different cities across the country. And so, what they did was they hired teams of researchers to go into jails and interview um, people who were detained about their drug use history. And, um, you know, I have worked in, I had been studying criminal justice. I worked in a number of racial justice contexts prior to that. But the experience of actually spending weeks of a, a time. Weeks at a time, sitting in the intake area of the Cook County Jail was just a mind-blowing experience. Um, Cook County Jail at that time had between ten and eleven thousand people in custody on any given day. Uh, the population of people in custody in Cook County Jail is was and continues to be about ninety percent African American, despite the fact that uh, Cook County itself is about thirty percent black. Um, and like most jails in this country, almost everybody in custody is not convicted of a crime. People are there um, pre-trial because they have been accused of a crime, and because in Cook County there both was and is cash bail, almost everybody who is in custody is in custody because they could not afford to make bail. Um, And to be in that environment every single day and have known and heard almost nothing about it previously, despite having a long history of activism in criminal justice reform and in racial justice, kind of blew my mind. And I just felt like people's stories deserved to be told. And so that was what I set out to do as part of my dissertation.
0: Before we get into um, the subjects that you cover. um, And I just, I don't know, I I really, really enjoyed reading this book. Um, I just I would love to hear a little bit about your methods. Um, I just, I'm a methods nerd, and I'm always curious. But here, I thought that the book itself even was a really compelling argument for using mixed methods to answer these big questions about um, what justice looks like, how systems work, um, all of all of those things.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it is mixed methods, as you point out. And so in terms of quantitative focus um, or quantitative analyses, I was very fortunate to be able to get access to a data set through the Cook County Circuit Court that tracked people who had been um, accused of felony crimes and included information as to whether or not those people had been detained. And so through that, I was able to quantitatively document what the population of people detained in Cook County jail looks like, what kinds of, um, allegations people are in for. And then more importantly for, for my study and from, for my interest to understand the extent to which being in custody pretrial affected their outcomes. Um, and then the part that I think was most important about the book was really the qualitative data collection. So I did interviews with, um, slightly more than 60 people who had been detained in Cook County Jail um, for anywhere from a couple of days to um, up to nine months. And I think the qualitative data was really, really important because while the body of research on pretrial detention has grown in the, the years since I initially did the research to when I published the book, I have not seen a single qualitative study on people who are detained um, and within the larger body of research on mass incarceration more generally the vast majority of research is quantitative in nature and i think some of that is an access issue i think many of us doing this kind of research we tend to be white we tend to be privileged we tend to come from environments where um, we are less likely to have friends and family members who are or have been involved in the criminal justice system. Um, and so it's easier to get numbers. Um, but I think the, the, and I think those numbers are important. I think we need to know the scope of the problem and we need to be able to document it. And we need to be able to quantitatively measure, um, the harms that are done by the by the criminal justice process. But I also think that, um, to some extent, a focus only on quantitative analysis almost misses some of the really key issues because some of the key issues may not happen to a majority of people or may not be measurable in existing data sets. And so that was what I thought was really important about being able to supplement the, the court data with interviews with people. And if, if you want more on the, of the methods in terms of sort of like my recruitment and, and things like that, um, you know to be honest I just went to the courthouse I went um, I went to different Cook County criminal courts I went in, I spent a bunch of time at the main courthouse um, I there is an adult probation department in the downstairs of the courthouse and I um, went down to where the probation department is and I um, talked to a probation supervisor who was down there and I talked about what I told him what I was looking to do and he said, we have a lot of people here who have been in custody. You are welcome to approach folks and ask if they want to talk to you. Um, I found I did the same thing um, with a diversionary social service program that also is connected to the Cook County Courts and run by a nonprofit organization. Um, And they also let me basically sit in their lobby and approach people and introduce myself and explain um, what I was interested in talking to them about and see if they were willing to do so. and then the, the biggest thing was was just snowball sampling, word of mouth. Um, you know, as I said, the city of Chicago is about thirty, or Cook County is about thirty percent black, and Cook County Jail is about ninety percent black. It's also um, very geographically segregated or concentrated within a couple of Chicago neighborhoods, and so everybody that I talked to knew somebody else who had had the same experience. Everybody who I interviewed had a friend or a brother or a cousin or an uncle or somebody else who also had spent time in Cook County Jail. And so once I got a couple of of respondents interested in talking to me, people just started um, referring other people left and right.
0: Thank you. Thank you for all that. I just, I, I, I was curious to, to hear what you'd say, because there are um, there are really fascinating discussions of, of methods or how you actually end up doing the work throughout the book. So I, I really appreciate that. Um, I guess, I, I suppose, just to sort of dive right in, something that I found um, absolutely shocking, um, but also not surprising in a way, given what I know about the increase of, um, of incarceration, um, and and jailing in in the US um was just the sheer number of people um like you give that that half a million number um, on any any given day people being um detained before and that just that sheer number um really made me reflect throughout re- reading the book on this this question that you that you put forward a, a little bit in in the introduction of um pre pre trial uh, detention versus the presumption of innocence. Um, and I was, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about that, that tension, because that seems to really underpin a lot of the book as well as just how, I don't, I don't know how to say it other than how shockingly common this practice is. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I'll speak
1: first to the shocking commonness of this practice. So, um, you know, as you said, on any given day in this country, approximately 500,000 people are detained without being convicted of a crime. Um, that number, the pattern, the way in which we got to that place almost exactly mirrors the way in which we got to mass incarceration more generally. So in 1980, uh, 120,000 people were in jail pre-trial on any given day, and really as um just the scope of the criminal justice system expanded. Pretrial detention expanded alongside that. Um, you know, many, many people who are in jail pretrial are only in there for a couple of days, um, and that's, as we can talk about in a little while, that in no way means it is not incredibly harmful on their lives. But more than twelve million people enter local county jails um, throughout in any one year in this country. Um, And there's really great research being done by the Vera Institute of Justice talking about um, how jails are being used and misused and why so many people are entering county jails every day. Um, The presumption of innocence issue is, as you said, it's it's really a, a thread that runs throughout the book. So when we hear the presumption of innocence, we think that means that people are treated as if they are innocent throughout the criminal process. Um, but in reality, that's not true. And it used to be true, at least legally, it used to be true. So the presumption of innocence is a principle that became part of American law through a Supreme Court ruling in 1895. And essentially, the court ruled that it, the, the court, as part of a larger ruling, um declared that the presumption of innocence is an axiomatic principle at the core of our criminal process. But there wasn't really any kind of definition of what that meant. And so over the course of the 20th century, there were a series of Supreme Court rulings that weighed in on and essentially defined in a more practical manner what the presumption of innocence means. And sort to, to, to be brief about it, over time, the court's interpretation of the presumption of innocence became increasingly limited. Um, And ultimately, what the court um, decided in a series of cases in the latter half of the 20th century, and what is prevailing law now is that the presumption of innocence is a procedural directive that applies only at trial. So when a defendant is in facing a trial the judge and the jury must presume that he is innocent innocent, and the burden of proof rests upon the prosecution to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. But that presumption has no bearing on any part of a person's interaction with the criminal process prior to trial. And so if a person is held in custody because he or she or they are detained um, because they can't make bail because of a preventive detention, the presumption of innocence is is not applicable. It's not a it's a it's a trial principle only. Um, and I, you know, I think the other important. Context for that, in addition to just the fact that the number of people detained pre-trial has increased exponentially, um, the proportion of people, the proportion of defendants defa- detained pre-trial has also increased. Um, but also, simultaneous to both of those things, the proportion of defendants who actually go to trial has been decreasing consistently, um, really for for hundreds of years now, and so. Very, very few criminal cases actually resolve at trial, which means that functionally people don't actually in in any way have access to this ostensible right. If you don't go to trial, you are never presumed innocent.
0: That leads me to another question that i um I don't know that i was I was really. Again, I, it's one of those things where I was I was both surprised and not surprised. Um, just sort of given what I what I know about um, the the U.S. criminal justice system, um, I'm I'm used to hearing about um, plea deals in a very different sort of context, and I was really surprised by. Just all of the all of the discussion that you had about the impact of pretrial pre, pretrial detention um, on plea deals, and how, and th- and this is where I think um, I, I I think I just really really appreciate this multi methods approach, right? Because you're um, you have this this data that's you know showing an increase in plea deals, and also showing um, you know longer stays in pretrial detention and how that ends up um but additionally hearing from people who decided to go and take a plea deal even though um they didn't necessarily think that what they did was wrong or they didn't think that they were guilty um but just that they had um given up or had sort of other other reasons for that um so yeah i was was wondering if you could speak a little bit about about plea deals because that felt like um That felt like a second sort of unknown um, story to go along with this massive issue of pretrial detention. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So the one sort of clearly established fact about pretrial detention in every quantitative study that has been done on pretrial detention is the fact that defendants who are detained pretrial are more likely to be convicted and if convicted are more likely to get a more severe sentence than are defendants who are um, out of custody pending adjudication. And that is controlling for all relevant factors. That's controlling for prior criminal history. That is controlling for demographic factors. That is controlling for seriousness of offense. Um, and so it is definitively true that being detained leads to worse outcomes in the criminal justice system. And there has been speculation as to why this is, but without talking to people, without doing that qualitative data collection, you can't really definitively um, explain that phenomenon. And what I found, perhaps unsurprisingly, is that being in custody compels people to plead guilty, because ultimately, if you are in jail, And your choices are essentially to demand a trial and given the pace at which the criminal process functions, demanding trial could mean that you will be in custody for months or even years, or your option is to plead guilty. And then through a plea deal, you can get out much more quickly than you can through um, an assistance on trial. So of the 67 people I interviewed only one person went to trial. And that was not because only one person was innocent. That is because only one person was willing to wait in custody as long as you had to wait in order um, to actually go to trial. And the only person who went to tr- who insisted on his innocence and went to trial was ultimately acquitted of the allegations for which he was detained after nine months in custody. Um, But for other people, it's just, it's not realistic. It's not feasible for people to sit in jail so that they can demand a trial to prove their innocence. Um, People have jobs. While you are in jail, you cannot pay your rent. Um, I had someone, I interviewed with someone who was getting unemployment. He was unable to collect his unemployment um people's family members die while they're in custody and so there's so there's just such an array of pressure obviously to get out of jail and if your choice is to plead guilty and most often get credit for time served um or to insist on trial and sit in jail for more months it's it for many people it's like a a no-brainer um and one thing I will note is that many of the things for which people who I spoke with were detained because they couldn't pay bail were offenses that, even if they were true, the sentence was a sentence of probation. So you could, it, people would be in jail for months on, for being accused of crimes for which, if they were convicted, they would never even be sentenced to incarceration. And so for people with those kinds of charges, it's just a no brainer. Why on earth would you sit in jail for something that you could just plead guilty and get out the next day?
0: And listening to you speak about that, I'm also thinking of, um, there are a few um, interview excerpts, vignettes, I don't know, the ethnographer in me is coming through. Um, there are a few um, a few people who you introduce us to who um had to go through the process of pretrial detention, um, but then the charges were dropped, um, and that I found incredibly—I um, don't like—it made me really angry um, in in certain ways because there didn't seem to be, um, uh, I don't know, a recognition of that sort of time lost and the interruption in lives, and so I don't—I was—I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about how sometimes you know the end of this of this experience isn't just um you know going to trial but it's as as one person described as the doors open they got him and he went out into the world like that was that was just sort of the end
1: yeah absolutely so i think you know one thing i i think it's important to just talk about the the quantitative for a second which is to say um there is no data nationally on how many people that happens to. And that is because data on local criminal processes tend to be collected at the county level. There's no national or systematic process for collecting data on how many people um, are detained and then have their charges dismissed. So we know that, that most cases that go through to a formal resolution resolved via a plea deal, but we don't know how many, there's no information about how many people face criminal charges that are subsequently dismissed by the prosecution um, or of those people, how many are detained pretrial, but it is certainly more common to be, de- to have your charges dismissed than it is to have your charges acquitted because Going to trial is so uncommon, um, and you know the person who I, whose experience I really focus on the most um, in in that book is a, a man named Calvin who was had recently gotten out of the army. He was in his um, mid twenties when I interviewed him, and in his early twenties when he first went to jail, he essentially walked was walking in his neighborhood walked by a um, group of drug dealers who he knew because they were in the same neighborhood as him. And by talking to him, um, he essentially was viewed as having incriminated himself. He was arrested along with the men who actually were dealing drugs. He, because um, Chicago at that time was experiencing an overdose epidemic with fentanyl-laced heroin, he was actually charged with homicide for this allegation that he was involved in dealing drugs, his bail was set at three hundred and twenty thousand dollars, and he there was no way that he or his family was going to come up with the money for him to get out of custody, and so he spent six weeks in jail. Um, his girlfriend at the time was pregnant, and the stress of the preg of um, the stress of his detention of his facing homicide charges of just the general uncertainty um, caused her to have a miscarriage, which was really devastating, obviously, to both of them. Um, he he, So he was arrested. Um, he could not pay $320,000 or, or the $32,000 deposit necessary to be released. Um, He sat in custody for six weeks. He had no information. He didn't know what was going to happen to him. And then six weeks later, he showed up at court for his probable cause hearing and the prosecution dismissed the charges and he went home. So he had just spent six weeks um, terrified that he was going to spend the rest of his life in prison for something he had not done. And then he showed up at court and the charges were dismissed and he went home. Um, and in some ways that sounds like a success story, but I, I think you, you have to hear what Calvin had to say and really read the interview with him to understand how traumatic and damaging this experience was to him. Um, so when I interviewed him six years later, he was just really traumatized by what happened to him. It, caused a loss of faith for him in sort of his ability to succeed in life. I think it was particularly ironic for him as for other um, veterans who I interviewed who had served their country only to come back and essentially be treated like dirt, um, be presumed guilty, and um, be held in an environment where they... Never could have imagined that they would be, and had done nothing to deserve to be,
0: yeah. i I was struck um in a few places with with the use of the word success um, not not necessarily used by you, but by by others. And I was thinking, okay, you know, what <laughs> how how is this a success? How is this process um a success? Um, particularly, and considering, you know, time away from people, potentially losing a job, losing out on education um, as a as another person you you spoke with uh, points to. Um, but I don't I was I was really struck um, by in part what you're um, what you're in, invoking at the the end of that of. Um, I don't know, there's there, there's a section that that brings up all these questions about. um the intent of the system of pretrial detention versus what is felt as punishment, um, and additionally this coupling of incarceration and pretrial the incarceration as punishment and pretrial detention, um, and I, yeah, I don't. I, I would love to hear you um, speak a little bit to this, like linking of of these two kinds of of punishment, and also this like bizarre question of. You know how how do we think about success, or how do different groups of people think about success in these really horrible situations?
1: Yeah, so I think the the punishment question is a is a really good one. So um, we talked a little bit already just about the presumption of innocence and the way in which um, Supreme Court has redefined the presumption of innocence to be something that only applies a trial. And thus I argue is basically irrelevant for almost all cr- people facing criminal charges. Um, but the second really critical issue is procedural due process, um, which is part of the U S constitution as part of the 15th and Fifth four- and 14th amendments. And um, that guarantees all people due process the um, People have a presumption of due process prior to the deprivation of liberty or prior to punishment. And the way in which the court has um, essentially allowed pretrial detention to occur, despite the the, um, ostensible protections in the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments, is by arguing or ruling that Pretrial detention does not constitute punishment. It is a regulatory function that the court um, and the criminal justice system use to manage risk at, among the defendants and is not intended to punish people and therefore legally does not constitute punishment. And I it's sort of like mind-blowing to even say it because it's just facially absurd the notion that someone can be in jail for even a couple of days never mind weeks months or years and have that not be punishment um is is just like a completely ridiculous idea and so there's both the punishment that people experience while they are in custody um and some of that is just the 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 basic deprivation of freedom that being in custody entails. That is people being away from their homes, away from their children, um, away from their families. It is the physical hardship of being in jail, of not being able to walk around the corner if you need a breath of fresh air, because what you're going through is so stressful um, and intense. And then there is the collateral, the punishments that are really collateral consequences that largely mirror the kinds of collateral consequences that we think of and know about when we hear about mass incarceration, which is that if you are in jail, you lose your job. Um, And then you get out and suddenly you have lost your job and you cannot easily find a new one because when someone asks, why did you lose your last job? Why did you leave your last job? You can't tell a potential employer, oh, I lost my last job because I was in jail um, people. So, you know, one young man I spoke with was in school and he missed three weeks of school. I mean, it, it sounds like a small thing, but for somebody who is working full time, has a child and is trying to get his degree and misses three weeks of school, all of a sudden he then has to drop He has to drop out for the entire semester. He has to re-register. There are um just sort of opportunity costs and life costs that people experience that are intrinsically punitive. Um, I think a huge area in which a huge collateral consequence was the loss of cars. So if someone is arrested as part of being pulled over, their car would be impounded. And then there would be the impoundment, The cost of the initial impoundment and then those costs increase almost exponentially over a period of a couple of weeks. And even if the person was the charges were dismissed or a person is acquitted, those costs don't go away. A person still can get out of custody after three or four weeks with no criminal conviction. But, oh, $2,000 to get their car from the impoundment. And if the person has also just been in jail for a month, they have not been working. They're behind on their rent. They're behind on their cell phone payments. They're behind on their utility payments. And now you have a $2,000 cost to get your car out. Almost nobody, I don't even, I don't think a single person who I interviewed whose car had been impounded actually was able to afford to get their car out of impoundment. People and that's a huge cost um, that in is completely decoupled from whether or not a people a person is even convicted of the crime for which or the allegation for which they were in custody in the first place.
0: I want to take up um, something that I I feel like at least my questions have sort of asked around and not necessarily directly addressed, but it's been part of this conversation, um, which is that much of your discussion of um, I don't know of, of the importance of considering um, pretrial detention as well as considering the harms of um, of pretrial detention frames it as a racial justice issue and to me I don't know I I, I sort of um, again it's one of those things that I, I I assumed but I didn't realize the extent to which um, black people are are targeted for this, the, the, I don't know, looking at, um, the tables that you, that you give us, it's saying that, you know, Black defendants have, uh, greater odds of being detained than other defendants, even, you know, different types of crimes. And it just, I don't know, I was, I was really shocked. And so I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more, um, and more to that, that framing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think there are a number of different ways in which, um, pretrial detention is a racial justice issue. So, I I mean, obviously there's nothing about the criminal justice system in this country that's not a racial justice issue because um, Black people are so much more likely to be arrested and if arrested, more likely to be detained and more likely to be convicted and more likely to be incarcerated than are people from any other racial or ethnic background. Um, So that just, it's, it's fundamentally a racial justice issue. Um, what I show with pretrial detention is that pretrial detention both mirrors the uh, existing patterns in the larger criminal justice system, which is to say that black people are more likely to be detained pretrial. Um, and that in that sense, that reflects policing patterns that reflects incarceration patterns. But in addition to the fact that pretrial detention reflects the racial disparities that we see in other aspects of the criminal justice system, pretrial detention also contributes to and exacerbates those disparities. And that is because black defendants are more likely to be detained pretrial than are defendants from other racial and ethnic groups. Um, Some of that has to do with economic resources Some of that has to do with disparate policing, meaning that more Black defendants are more likely to have more prior arrests, which then um, lead to them being seen as more risky by judges or prosecutors who are making pretrial release and bail recommendations. But essentially, because of those things, Black people are more likely to be held in custody. And because We know definitively that being held in custody makes people more likely to take a plea deal, more likely to be convicted, and more likely to be incarcerated. Pretrial detention not only reflects the racial disparities that we see in other aspects of the criminal justice system, but it actually contributes to and exacerbates them. And it's really one of the factors that drives racial disparities in incarceration rates.
0: Absolutely, and I I do think that that's really clear throughout the book of how pretrial detention is part of all these other conversations. Um, just as you as you mentioned, um, something else that I was really struck by um, was not just the the financial sort of I don't know um, it feels very. Blunt and cold to put it this way, but the the quote unquote opportunity costs of of being held, um, but additionally the the costs of communication um, for families who or friends or partners or whoever to go visit someone who's been held, um, and that alongside just i don't I noted so many um passages where people said you know i I couldn't call someone. I couldn't contact anyone. The phones were broken broken everyone knows the phones were broken um and i was I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more towards that um that sort of i don't know it, it seemed like a a a fairly deliberate in a way isolation um as well as difficulties with maintaining connections um outside that at least to me seemed seemed to really <sighs> seem to really impact, um, really negatively impact people's mental health.
1: Yeah, I think it's um, interesting for me to kind of reflect back on that. Now, you know, as we're sort of several years into this pandemic, and so many people have experienced a level of isolation related to the pandemic, and there's such a greater awareness of the long term mental health effects of that kind of isolation. Um, and you think about something like being in jail and it's exponentially worse. Um, people are literally in cells, um, with people they do not know with very limited access to telephones. Um, you certainly can't use your cell phone when you're in jail. You can't like email your friend when you're in jail. There are pay phones and you can make collect calls and, um, there are far more people trying to make calls, then there are phones available to make calls. There are obviously very limited times at which um, people who are in custody are allowed to use those phones to make calls. Um, Obviously it is very expensive to receive a collect call from jail. And so it, it perhaps goes without saying, but most people who are in jail are poor. They don't have money. And if they had money, they wouldn't be in jail in the first place. And so then we, you know, you think about things like phone calls that cost a couple of dollars a minute, um, and then you have a person who was pri- previously contributing to the household income who now is in custody, and these become huge um, additional costs for people to bear. Um, one person just talked about just the basic bus fare cost that his girlfriend um couldn't come visit him because she just couldn't afford to pay her rent and also pay for the bus ticket to come and visit him in jail. Um, and many of the people in jail are young. So they live potentially at home with their parents. Many are some, you know, some folks are parents themselves and are unable to afford to call and speak to their children. Um, you know, for weeks on end. And it's incredibly isolating for someone to be in custody, to be in jail, to have this huge amount of looming uncertainty over what is going to happen in your life, when you will next go to court, what will happen with your case, whether you will be incarcerated long-term. And then to not even be able to have the emotional support of your friends and loved ones is a, a huge um, exacerbating factor for people's mental health and the level of trauma that people um, people experienced and talked about was was really intense. I mean I had multiple people who I interviewed um, broke down in tears while we were talking just talking about the isolation and talking about being away from their families um, for several parents, you know the trauma of, um feeling like they were setting a bad example for their children was also incredibly um upsetting, and people sort of had this tension between wanting to be connected to their family members and then not wanting to see their family member, not wanting their family members to see them incarcerated um, and it was it's not it's not like people just get out and that trauma goes away. It lasts for years
0: there's uh, a section of your book I always feel, feel weird reading people's words back at them but I, I promise I only choose um, you know the, the good good quotes here um, but there's a sentence that really struck me uh, regard, it's on, on page 93 um, towards the bottom regardless of their actual guilt or innocence the critical point is that the use of pretrial detention in the American criminal legal system fundamentally erodes any attempt to achieve justice therein um, and that just sort of really echoed in my head, just sort of in, in coming back to this, this book. Um, and I, I also noticed in, in bits and pieces as well, you were pointing out to different attempts to change this um, on, on scales big and small. Um, and I was I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to um, to the policy changes that you're seeing, um, whether or not they made it into the book. Because I also know that you know <laughs> policy on this can change very quickly. Um, just because it 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 did seem. Um, it did. It did seem like there was a, a nod towards even um, smaller jurisdictions taking it upon themselves to actually take this on as an issue and do something, regardless of whether or not you know their state or federal government is is making moves there.
1: Yes. So there has been more movement towards addressing towards acknowledging and beginning to address pretrial detention, I would say, in the last eight years or so. Um, Although I have to say that when I was writing the book, you know, about two years ago, I was much more optimistic about where pretrial reform, pretrial justice reform was going than I am now. Um, So there certainly have been places, both local, as you mentioned. So for example, Santa Clara County made a decision that they did not want to contribute to cash bail. And so they, as a, as a County jurisdiction came up with an approach to pretrial detention and release that was not focused on cash. Um, the San Francisco district attorney's office where I work does not seek to detain people using cash bail. Um, the state of Kentucky, state of new jersey have um, implemented very progressive and sweeping pretrial justice reforms um illinois is slated to f- essentially eliminate cash bail starting in january of 2023 um california briefly ended cash bail um but then the um legislation that eliminated cash bail in California was overturned at, by voters in a ballot initiative. Um, New York state passed a very um, ambitious bail reform a couple of years ago, only to very recently roll back many of those reforms. Um, so, you know, there are reforms that are happening, but there's also a pretty extreme backlash that is happening around pretrial justice reform and around criminal justice reform more generally and um, you know it, it was rolled back in New York there is a lot of debate about um, cash bail in San Francisco. I know that um, in Illinois while while bail reform pretrial justice reform is slated to, to take place starting in 2023 there is already a lot of vocal opposition. And a lot of politicians blaming a bit even more minor changes that have already taken place for um, crime, even though there is literally no evidence that bail reform or pretrial justice reform um, in any way contributes to crime. So, you know, there there's not nothing happening, but um, you know, I, I think it's definitely, two steps forward and one and a half steps back. It's, it's I think the, the road to really comprehensive, meaningful pretrial justice is very far away.
0: Well, thank you so much for spending all this time um, with us today. And before we close, would you like to let listeners know about other projects you may be working on or where else they might find your work?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I would say, for the moment, the this is my main project is really trying to continue to go out and talk about pretrial justice, and in particular, to remind people of the importance of um, innocence as a principle in the American criminal justice system. Um, this book you can find on Rutledge.com as well as on Amazon um, or anything else like that. I also do a lot of work around just data, criminal justice data and how we can better use research um, to drive the policies and practices that are more effective in the criminal justice system. And so um, you can find me on, on LinkedIn or on Twitter or, or anywhere like that.
0: So, well, thank you so much um, and enjoy, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you so much.